I'm more of a rat race guy. Oh, more of a death race guy. Rat race? Yeah, see, this is the bullshit this guy comes at us with, you know? <laughs> This is a shitty 2000 knockoff. Some huh? garbage 2000s movie. <laughs> nice try, buddy. Yeah, Mad 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 World needed a Smash Mouth concert at the end to really get on my side. You'll, You're I get banned. it. I get it. You'll take Rowan Atkinson over Terry Thomas. I get it. You know? <laughs> yeah. I get it. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. That's hot out there. That's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders. I'm one of your hosts, and I'm joined here with, as always... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasiulis. Our show is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us is tasked with selecting a theme for the week, and then the other two hosts have to pick films in response to that theme, and we toss them together and run the gauntlet. So this week I had the pleasure of selecting the theme, and it was partially in reference to a topic that we had a couple weeks ago, which was inspired by the new film Dune, and we had done an episode on Dunes. And... One thing I wasn't able to shake from the film Dune is the fact that there is sort of an unremarkable hero at the center of it named Paul in this grand Dune verse. Everything is at stake with just this simple little boy named Paul. And I thought, yeah, kind of a bit of a flaccid chosen one, if you ask me. So I said, <laughs> I test I test my, my guys here to, to bring me some alternate chosen ones, films that are somewhat riffing on that idea to see, you know, what their own interpretation of what a chosen one might look like in, in cinema uh, outside of something like Dune. And funny enough, uh, we, we ended back up in the desert yet again um, with both of these films. And I think that, you know, it's a natural inclination to head to the desert when thinking of a chosen one, you know, the land of prophecies and where it seems like uh, everything's so spread out that there's like stakes on certain individuals and communities coming together to rally around one heroic figure. So let's start with the with the earliest of the two. Marsh, what did what did you bring to the table? If you follow me on Twitter, you know I'm a, a Fleischer freak, as in the films of Richard Fleischer. And so when you selected the topic, my mind went to a film that I think presents a very curious case of a chosen one, and that is Barabbas from 1961. The film is based on a Swedish novel by Par Lagerkvist, who in fact won the Nobel Prize for Literature for Barabbas. But this film is not uh, a Nobel Prize winning film. It's a Dino De Laurentiis production <laughs> in Italy, a collaboration with Hollywood shot at Cinecitta and with Italian craftspeople, uh, including Aldo Tanti, the cinematographer who shot early Rossellini and Visconti and Knights of Cabiria, among others. And it is a 
widescreen religious epic about the titular character Barabbas, who, as the film opens, is spared in place of Jesus Christ, who is sent to be crucified. And the film that follows is, yes, what happens to this man, Barabbas, who was chosen by the people to be freed for the, the festival holiday instead of the son of God, right? So he's kind of an anti-chosen one, but he is in fact chosen and it affects the rest of his life as he has to deal with the fact that he is alive and Jesus is not. So I thought, yeah, this would be an interesting one to sort of pick apart. Uh, it is, uh, for my money, my favorite, you know, biblical epic. Uh, Kyle and I, about 10 years ago, had a little you know, biblical epic kick. And, you know, oh my God. it's it, it's not it's not great fertile territory, really, you know, but Barabbas like really, really shook me. And I think it's a, a visually dynamic film and has a, I should mention, extremely soulful performance by Anthony Quinn. The as, mighty Quinn. Yeah, the mighty Quinn mm -hmm. as the titular character. And yeah, that's uh, that's what I picked. Barabbas. You give me a good idea that one week for, for a topic, we'll have to, I'm going to challenge you both to pick films that would be uh, your picks for the Nobel Prize in, in cinema, <laughs> Nobel Prize winning candidates. They should let us pick. Yeah, it should be up to the gauntlet every year who wins the Nobel Prize in cinema. Um, Agree. Yeah. Um, Andy, tell us about your film. You know, I really racked my brain when you gave me the topic because initially my instinct was to to go to go big, you know, to just like let's let's take one of those big films, you know, The Matrix. I mean, we've seen so many of these films about this, yeah, weak, ineffectual protagonist who becomes a a godlike hero, the chosen one. And and I was like leaning towards that, but then for some reason, I'm not really particularly sure why, but my brain just went the complete opposite direction. And I went to a film that is all but forgotten. Uh, today uh, that I think is actually quite an interesting film and quite a well-made film at that. But I think what's also interesting about it is that it's up for debate perhaps in this film who the one, the chosen one, the the savior uh, figure actually is. Like I said, a, a sort of forgotten film from 1988 directed by Kevin Reynolds called the Beast, also known by its international title, which is the title that I prefer, The Beast of War. This is quite an interesting film because it is set during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And though it is an American production, uh, it is set from the perspective of both the Mujahideen fighting the Russians and the, the Russian soldiers themselves, many whom are played by American actors, including, you know, one of the central figures who is Taj, 
played, you know, play, uh, it's a, a, an Afghan rebel, a Mujahideen fighter played by Stephen Bauer, the Cuban-born American <laughs> actor Stephen Bauer. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But anyway, the film, for those who haven't seen it, it's, as I said, it's a war film that takes place during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And the film opens with an incredibly brutal scene in which Soviet troops assault this sort of remote Afghan village, killing women, children, men, just blowing this village to bits with, with several tanks. Following this attack, Stephen Bauer, who plays Taj, is sort of anointed by the villagers, the new Khan, the new leader of their people. And he's sort of tasked then with getting revenge for this, uh, this brutal attack by the, the Russian troops. But also, within the Russian troops, we have uh, Konstantin Kovarchenko, a young tanker played by Jason Patrick, who is, through the brutality of the Red Army in Afghanistan, starting to question the mission. He's having his own sort of moral crisis, watching all of this carnage being perpetrated by his fellow soldiers and his officers. And through a set of circumstances which we can get into, there's quite an interesting moment where Jason Patrick, this Russian soldier, uh, finds himself aligning now with the Mujahideen to help them hunt down the beast of war, this T-55 tank that is largely responsible for the destruction of their Afghan village. And so the film is quite interesting because it's it's sort of a war film, but also as the title would indicate, it's it's almost kind of like a, a, a hunt movie. Uh, the, the beast of war, this tank, becomes an almost like mythical creature that the Mujahideen and Jason Patrick are trying to to stalk, to track it across its its desperate attempt to escape the rebels who are closing in on it. It's a, it's it's I think a, a very underrated film, and there's some interesting story behind its production as well, which we can we can get into in terms of perhaps why it's a it's a forgotten film. But that's that's what I brought. I walked away from both films very surprised. I suppose, but I feel like both of them are genres that are typically a bit more pathological than the films we watched actually were. And, you know, Marsh, you had mentioned how you went on like a biblical epic kick. And I think that one of the most interesting things about Barabbas is the way it kind of forges its own path and own style away from the typical biblical epic, especially in moments that would be treated as these like grand orchestral emotional swelling moments um, are instead more moments of the film being deflated in a really interesting way uh, very human and very earthy and same with the the beast of war where it is high stakes there is a lot of inner fighting and betrayal and it is the type of thing that would normally feel quite sensationalistic but at the same time the film is unadorned in an interesting way where it's not trying to hold your hand through all of that drama. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that that was something, I mean, these films have actually quite a lot in common, um, 
but it was specifically that quality of the way they kind of diverge from the norms of their genres that really struck me. On that note, like a really strong connection between them is, in fact, that these chosen one characters are, I guess, agnostic kind of figures. They're not true believers in in their contexts, Mm -hmm. right? So Barabbas, of course, is not Christian. And as he, you know, goes throughout this movie, right, that's his struggle is this, you know, reconciling like what happened to him with this ever growing religion and kind of like wanting to believe, but ultimately he's skeptical, he's cynical. And in The Beast, you have, in at least the case of Kovrachenko, right, here's a guy who also doesn't believe in the cause of the people around him, right? And even Taj, the new Khan, wants to do things differently than his predecessors, right? So in all of these cases, they are atypical uh, I mean, I, I guess it is is usually built into a chosen one narrative, some kind of reluctance, some hesitation, right? Yeah. I think it's really interesting in the case of Barabbas that, yes, in my mind, I was like, oh, yeah, it's one of these big biblical epics of classic Hollywood. And it's I've seen this a million times already, but especially in the opening. And I think that's sort of what you're getting at, Ryan, like you know, all the biblical splendor is happening in the background. Mm-hmm. It's such a brilliant opening, the way that they they sort of lay out like what the film is really about, you know? I mean, all that's happening, the whole crucifixion more or less is happening in the background and Barabbas is kind of just like looking out windows and being like, oh, who's this sad sack or whatever? There he goes. Oh, yeah. yeah. The way that, yes, in, I think, framing it as the story of the other guy and and really like that's where the power of the film lies because we are barabbas we're not christ <laughs> you know <laughs> we are the other guy we're the one who was left behind yeah. now on this like shitty fucking planet i think that's so typical in in the chosen one narrative right it's that someone begins and is like why me huh what do you mean i'm the one you know and they grow and they learn and and the film is really this this question of will they won't they realize their their true potential and and do something with it but you know for barabbas I mean, I'd say for like 98% of the movie, he is he is not answering the call. Uh, and, and I think that that's, again, what is re-watching it like so powerful. Mm-hmm. Both films are filled with these kind of, you know, reluctant heroes. But I think, yes, that's that's what's so typical of of this topic. Uh, I just think that the true measure of the film is like whether or not we buy that journey. And I think in both of these films... Uh, as you said, Ryan, in their understated ways, mm-hmm. they both make a very powerful case for that for that journey. Yeah, I think that that's the most singular achievement of uh, Barabbas, specifically in its relation to the biblical epic genre. Because as you as you said, we are Barabbas. We are we are in his shoes, and we, it, the film is very clearly placing us. Everything is happening through his perspective in a way that one of the things that I think distinguishes it so much from other films of the genre is how the cult of Christ truly feels like the development of a cult 
in this film. The film doesn't have that implied faith that comes with so many biblical epics, this like accepted fact that we're watching the story of Christ and that anyone who is a non-believer is clearly on the wrong side of history throughout the film. But here, the way that the cult of Christ is developed really does kind of feel like this outsider event and when we're with Barabbas, we're, we also have that hesitancy because it's clearly society is not accepting this devoted group that's, that's following him. And Barabbas feels so outside of both what they're preaching and outside of society itself because he himself is an outsider that when we're placed in his shoes, yeah, the development of Christianity in general is, is an odd experience in this film compared to other biblical biblical films it puts him in the very curious place of coming across these fervent believers and him being like look i was there (laughs) okay (laughs) you know um and this whole right is these you know this religion being built out of these events that he was a part of and still being skeptical and going like wow you know nothing i saw yeah i didn't see him come out of that you know, grave or whatever. Like, yeah, I see an empty tomb. That's what he says. Yeah, that's all I saw. Some guy get hung up on a goddamn cross. That's what I saw. Yeah. And so, like, you know, that we should say the film spans, you know, roughly twenty plus years in in his life. And and it's again, it's like it puts him in these funny situations later in the film when he comes into contact with these sort of hardliners, and he's you know they all know who he is, right? He's that he's become. Uh, uh, this kind of mythical kind of being as mm-hmm. well, even though, of course, it's his curse to never die, essentially. Mm-hmm. He himself can't even understand why he was chosen. I mean, from no. the get-go, he's like, what do you mean? I'm I'm, I'm a bad dude, <laughs> you know? Yeah, he's presented as a, a rebel, a robber, an assassin. And really, he's just kind of like low-level low-level bandit who likes to party a lot. Yeah. And yeah, and, and the film doesn't doesn't tell us or give us any contextual clues uh, into like, yes, like why did the crowd shout to free Barabbas, you know? That it doesn't get into that. It's just a fact of life, right? And one that he then, yeah, has to has to reconcile with as he recognizes uh, the growing power of, of Jesus. Yeah, it, it's in that wild moment when he really does understand that he is the chosen one like where it really sinks in and it's him looking Jesus dead in the eyes as they're placing the crown of thorns and the cross over his shoulder Um, and we don't get to see Jesus's face but we definitely get to see Barabbas's face as the weight of being the chosen one suddenly clicks for him you know it there's a severity to that moment and that's the thing I, I had talked about how many elements of the film are underplayed but there are some key things that are quite expressive a moment like that and then also the crucifixion itself which is filmed mm-hmm. during an actual total solar eclipse that's an amazing scene I feel like seeing that in a theater would have been pretty unbelievable it, it feels like the end of times all of a sudden you know all the light has left the world they're they're reveling right Right? Barabbas has like gone back to all his his buddies and his crew. They're 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 celebrating. They're, you know they're getting drunk, and then all of a sudden, yeah, they're slamming goat skins. Yeah. Yeah. They <laughs> ironically crown him in mockery of Jesus right. as Jesus is being crucified. At the end of him, condemned was he? Mm, that's just it. See, they had the choice between him and me, and they chose me. How do you like that, Barabbas, the idol of the city? <laughs> 
You're as good as a King Barabbas. Mm. They call that prophet the King of the Jews, and they chose you instead. Yeah. Yeah. Show your respects to King Barabbas. Let's have a crowning of it. Yeah. And this is really, yeah, the first introduction to this film's, like, flights of fancy with... I guess what we could call expressionism or expressionistic elements because the total eclipse crucifixion is just so dynamic. Again, the use of light and dark throughout uh, is, is astounding. And it's kind of like cut in a very, you know, trancey kind of like spiritual way, which is really cool. To me, it almost seemed like the you know, the closer he got to God, the more like extreme lighting would come in, uh, like when he talks to Lazarus. You know, there's this great scene where, of course, Barabbas, you know, meets the apostles and is like, what the fuck's going on here, you know? <laughs> he's, again, he's skeptical. Like, show me Jesus. You said he was resurrected. Like, show me the body, yeah. you know? And of course, they're like, we, we don't know. We don't know. But we do uh, have this guy. Yes, we got this guy. And they bring in, yeah, Lazarus who's extremely tall and pale and looks like he's dead. He looks like a uh, Romero zombie from like Dawn of the Dead. Yes, he does. <laughs> uh, and it's a very haunting sequence, but in that moment I started to realize, right, like how they were subtly changing the lighting and the compositions uh, through Barabbas's flirtations with uh, the cult of Jesus. You know, it, it was conjuring for me um, my memories of... The Last Temptation of Christ, you know, where I was thinking of another attempt to sort of controversially maybe ground the the Christ story in a more human way, mm -hmm. right? And I, I remembered specifically like Scorsese's moment with Lazarus and how Lazarus was depicted in there. And he just like, you know, everyone's like trying to talk to him or whatever. And he just looks so exhausted. And I was thinking of that idea of like a guy just like being dead and then suddenly coming back to life and like, you know, what weight? you would carry just from that alone. Yeah. You know, you just sort of like, you're just like, why am I back or whatever, right? The weight of being a chosen one. <laughs> sure, yeah, right? And I was like hoping that this scene was going to like measure up to that in my mind. And like, not only did it measure up to that, it like surpassed it because the minute that Lazarus walks in the room, it is like, it's just like a chill runs down your spine. Mm -hmm. Like the makeup, the lighting, as you said. This thing you, uh, you experienced. Well, what is it? I've experienced nothing. Only death. And death is nothing. Well, nothing? No. What should it be? But also, like, Quinn's, Anthony Quinn's reaction, you know, Barabbas's reaction to him. Because, like, Barabbas is this big, tough, burly guy, you know, and, yeah, he's skeptical, and he doesn't believe in all this magic mumbo-jumbo. But even he, when he sees... Lazarus. He's like backed up against the wall, <laughs> yeah. you know, like kind uh -huh. of horrified. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and he, it almost even feels like Lazarus floats into the room in a way, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, he really does look like a ghost. And Quinn's performance feels so contemporary, especially compared to so many of the other players in the film. I still think ultimately <laughs> that they're not playing up their parts in a way that's typical of a biblical film, but there are still, there are like sprinkled throughout this film extras or at least just like minor characters with lines that kind of feel like they are a part of an epic and like trying to 
perform in an epic well, way. Just wait until Jack Palance rolls on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But never with Quinn. I mean, he feels like he feels almost like he's playing a contemporary man. And I think that's so much of the way that we're seeing everything through this perspective. It'd been a while since I've just like sat down and watched an Anthony Quinn movie. Yeah. And yes, like it's so hard to not be thinking about that when you're watching an Anthony Quinn movie because I think he was an actor in classic Hollywood that that was I would argue like ahead of his time in terms of mm-hmm. like you see him thinking yeah. in this movie yeah. you know from the get go like he's thinking in a way that yes maybe a lot of the other actors aren't but like that's part of it I mean this is about Barabbas and about his journey and his struggles so much of the film is just watching Anthony Quinn like struggle internally. And and this is the perfect kind of role for someone who is so cerebral and stormy, I think is another good word for Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, I mean, it feels like a storm is blowing through town when he is wandering around in the middle of the night sort of proclaiming, I have just as much right to be alive as any of you, you know? And he feels like he's under attack for being the chosen one, that he is this figure that, has like caused such great suffering to to so many people so many you know people who are devoted to Christ and it's all his fault and there is this element of the contemplative protagonist that really registers with his performance in those scenes. Barabbas is getting it from all sides, right? Because of this thing that like is totally outside of his control. But we should mention, yes, uh he is released and his former girlfriend has you know become a fervent believer in Christianity. And so much so that she's, yes, preaching, you know, sort of like apocalyptic narratives on the street. Uh, and so this upsets his world uh, in one way. And and of course, the Christians resent him for being Barabbas. Ultimately, yeah, they, they, they run afoul of the law. Yeah, she gets fucking stoned to death in a very, very, very brutal scene. Yeah. I was shocked. I mean, I know with some of the biblical epics, that's part of it. You know, the sort of like blood and bones of the idea of sacrifice and, and you know, how, how people had to, to suffer in order to transcend or whatever. But like when his girlfriend is taken and put in that like pit Ugh. and they just line up everybody around her and people just start wailing her with rocks. I mean, I was like... I was like flinching at times. That brutality is really clear in an incredibly expressive dolly move where we start with her sort of center right of the frame and the rocks are coming in and she reaches out and her arm extends across the scope frame and then the camera dollies to the left. When the shot ends, we're left with just her arm now on the right of the frame as it's sort of nearly buried on all of the rocks in front of her and there's blood splattered on the rocks and then it, it it's in that moment where it feels like she has become buried by all of these stones that have been thrown at her even though we haven't literally seen the stones you know form a pile on top of her um, but it's in moments like that that feel so extremely brutal because they're so incredibly evocative in like a stylish way and for for Barabbas then this moment he really starts to now understand the political implications of this. You know, it's really this period, I think, where, you know, he he begins to just sort of, like, 
want to die. Like that's a huge part of his journey is that he wants to die. He wants off of the shitty planet. He doesn't want to be with these kooky fucking Christians. He doesn't want to deal with these Romans. He just wants out. Well, yeah, he goes and rejoins his like bandit crew. Right. Kills one of them. Mm-hmm. And then they do an ambush yes. on the Romans. And they kill a couple Jewish uh, religious leaders as well. Yes. You know, he's so angry because it was these Jewish religious leaders who led, you know, his pardoning as opposed to Christ's, you know? And so he sees in them that they are the ones who have now subjected him to have to, like, suffer and live this shitty fucking life. Like, mm-hmm. I should have died, and now my life sucks, my girlfriend's dead, and and he's blaming them. And so he, like, chases these guys down to the point where it is, like, it's like a suicidal mission. And that's a moment that I feel like is pretty typical for a chosen one narrative, you know, is is trying to relieve yourself of the burden of being the chosen one. And here, at least the burdens of his responsibilities are simply existing as the chosen one. But yeah, that is his attempt to sort of rid himself from that responsibility just by ending his life. But it proves to be a failed effort because since he has been pardoned initially, he can no longer be sentenced to death so when he is brought up against the court once more instead of receiving execution like he maybe was planning for he is then condemned to serve in eternity at sulfur mines in sicily then we move into like the next phase of the film which is 20 years in the sulfur mines and this uh is where the film goes like full haze full like orange fog yellow haze it's got you know it's very earth tonesy but in that kind of like dutch masters kind of way i (laughs) mean some of the some of the compositions are just like brown and black and but they're like beautiful not in like an ugly 1970s way beautiful in a they're defined yeah Mm -hmm. like they're they're so great and yeah and then you know we get Maybe it's too obvious a metaphor for hell uh, down in the sulfur mines, but it's a... It's a purgatory underworld for sure. And I mean, just the way that everyone is arranged allows for some incredible camera movements through those mines because it's so deceptively simple. Um, at least at first glance, the way the camera is dollying around in that underworld. But then once you realize how long the shots have been going on for and you start thinking about where that track might be and the fact that everyone who's walking around is chained to an additional partner um, and they're often like carrying things or spinning in circles going up ladders exactly raising and lowering buckets of goop (laughs) yeah Yeah, lots of good buckets of goop in that sequence and just like dusty orange yellow rocks and again a reminder of like the the magicians of chinachita like the the production designers there the set and extras work in this movie is like alone something that you could just look at Mm -hmm. and pay attention to completely separately in the film yeah the the whole underworld sequence was a visual feast i mean and the way it was all set up was really fascinating too Uh, there was just so much intensity placed on the fact that you are chained to an additional person and then like what type of relationships you could possibly develop between the person you're chained to. Most often they just ignored each other. And then those challenges of then being severed after they've collapsed dead and you can't just obviously drag their lifeless corpse uh, through your labor in the mine. Um, But then also in feeding sequences when they're trying to like 
burst their way through the crowd. Like imagine being in a mosh pit trying to get closer to the stage, but then you also have someone literally chained to your leg along with everyone else. So there's there's chains on the ground and everything is the potential of being tangled in a really horrible, horrible way. There's also sulfur in your eyes and Roman <laughs> guys with whips just whipping the shit out of you at all times as well. I mean, this is a this is an intense like 20, 30 minutes of slavery, essentially. And they really do emphasize it. A lot of emphasis is placed on the hard labor that Barabbas and company, these nameless, faceless men with beards covered in sulfur parading through the movie. Yeah. I felt like I could smell that sequence. Oh, Me too. I really God. felt like I could yeah, smell it. Yeah, I mean, and maybe it goes without saying, it might be just a stupid thing to say, but throughout, all I kept thinking was, oh my God, I can't even imagine. <laughs> I literally could not imagine having to do that. Like, I would I would rather just be the guy that collapses dead and then gets dragged around on yeah. the chain. In this sequence as well, like, we come back to this motif, if you want to even call it that, of the fact that, like, Barabbas as being anointed or chosen at the beginning has really just been condemned to live mm-hmm. because we do see, like, as the time elapses, this series of, you know, his, his chained partners dying while he lives on, culminating, of course, in... You know, his last, I think, uh, you know, mm-hmm. chain gang partner. Yeah, after 20 years, he's finally chained to an obnoxious Christian named Sahak <laughs> who won't give it up. Like, when Barabbas <laughs> tells him his name, uh, he attacks him and wants to kill him, right? Because he's alive, right? And this guy, very, very intense uh, Jesus guy, and he does start <laughs> to chip away at Barabbas's sort of armor, right? Because he's been in the mines now for like 20 years. But as Barabbas says, uh, why hasn't this been forgotten? Like, he's like shocked that anyone would even care about him. Yeah, yeah he takes him to task for the ethics of his own hatred. He even says, oh, well, you know, your your guy, you know, your guy Jesus, <laughs> he, he, he was telling, don't you know you're supposed to love everybody? What is this? And he's like, ooh, you got I'd be there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Barabbas is like, I was there on the scene. Yeah, and yet, you know, Barabbas basically like saves his his life. This whole nightmare sequence ends with your classic sulfur mine collapse as all of a sudden everything just bursts into flames not the last time that's gonna happen in this film either seeing like the piles of bodies trapped in in all sorts of different kinds of rubble and blood sort of blending with the sulfur and the rock i mean uh, incredibly graphic it's mass chaos down there Mm mm-hmm yeah, both both films that we did are, are peak dry rock cinema. Yeah, blood on the rocks. Blood on the rocks, bodies being slammed up against the rocks or buried underneath them. That earthquake uh, or just mine collapse in general is is incredible. Seeing the way, you know, talking about the production design, the way that they've arranged all of the bodies in this like beautiful overhead shot that suddenly becomes so colorful because of the blood and the way that they're all spread out. And then, miraculously, 
Barabbas and Sahak are, I think, the only survivors mm-hmm. of this mine collapse as they manage to scrounge their way to safety. Yeah, Barabbas' curse saved Sahak, that's for sure. That's right. That's true. And next thing you know, they're just like working a plow uh, in a sunny field and talking about how this like feels pretty good after all that work <laughs> in the sulfur yeah. mines. The fresh uh, air. Yeah. It's like summer vacation. You know? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And they're sort of like, happy in the sun and that's when also barabbas's legend himself continues to grow julia the wife of this like roman politician comes up on the carriage and wants to see barabbas because he's so lucky and wants to you know be in proximity to this you know, unicorn. Yeah, uh, the man who can't die. <laughs> the man who can't die. That's what they say. Oh, 20 years in the mines, he's indestructible. So she thinks he's good luck and brings him and Sahak along to the big city. And this is, of course, now where we enter uh, the gladiator phase of Hell the yeah. film. This film just obviously, if you're listening, this film just has like big movements, right? right. It's like you open, it's the crucifixion of Christ. It's like 20 something minutes. And then and he gets, you know, thrown in jail. And then it's like a huge sequence of the mines. And now we're about to get a huge sequence of gladiator action. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, oh, it yeah. really all plays out exactly how you'd expect it to. It, it is, it is <laughs> those sequences in particular are just the ones that remind you of when movies had this type of scale. I mean, it's just an incredible thing to watch. And I started thinking about attending an event like that today, not specifically um, <laughs> people being killed, but more just the the pyrotechnics involved and on like on that scale in a stadium that big, you know, it's been so long, like not even a concert, like things where there are like elephants climbing over staircases and there's all just all sorts of feats and daredevilry happening. Um, that introduction to the Coliseum again, it's like after the, the impressive, like scale and scope of the mine sequence. It's like it's outdone by this introduction to the Coliseum where presumably there is just a uh, royal Rumble. recreation. Yeah, it's like a recreation of a of an entire like, you know, large scale military like <laughs> battle that's taking place. And it is just pure, uh, just melee. I mean, there's just hundreds, presumably hundreds of people in the center of the Coliseum battling. And, and as you said, not just like gladiators with swords, but there's, you know, pikemen with spears. There's this whole elaborate kind of centerpiece that's like a big sort of staircase and archway, and underneath the archway are a bunch of lions. And so in the Royal Rumble, guys are being knocked off of this archway only to fall into a lion pit. And then there's the the elephants and I think some chariots riding around. I mean, it is like... (laughs) It's nuts. Like you're saying, Ryan, I'm with you on that. I was sort of like, man, this is... You know, we talked before about wanting to be at the Night Riders, you know, ex- <laughs> expo, but like I think that the the Night Riders pale in comparison to the Coliseum in Nero's heyday. Yeah, well, I mean, the budget for each production was pretty radically different, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what what the tickets went for for one of those uh, Royal Rumbles. I think a lot of them were free, to be honest with you. I think it was like encouraged right. the, the Roman public to like keep them yeah, for you know, morale, militainment. You yeah, know? no Royal Rub Hub listed on StubHub, you know. No, not Royal Rub Hub. <laughs> Royal Rub Hub. <laughs> Royal Rub Hub. <laughs> 
Give me to the royal the rub hub. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Okay. Well, all right. Took a right. dirty turn. So Barabbas is trained to be a gladiator. And we're introduced now to the film's latest villain, uh, which is Jack Palance as Torvald, the amazing uh, gladiator man himself, who seems to uh, both participate in and run the Gladiator Academy. And we also discover that he has, uh, through his his daring feats of, of strength and courage and violence in the Colosseum, been awarded his freedom by the Emperor. Yes. Not once but thrice, three times. And each time he's been given this, this symbolic baton, he's given his freedom, he's decided on his own to come back, to come back for the blood and the violence. So in that moment, we see that like this guy, like he lives for this. Like, he Yeah, lives. he's a lover of the game. The man of the arena, for sure. You know, Sahak is sort of like, my God, like this is horrible like and this is now what we've got and yet Barabbas is kind of like charged up by it because he himself is a man of violence and Barabbas like kind of looks at him and and says like no this is good a man can understand this you know like this Uh for Barabbas makes sense you know it's the opposite of what he finds you know sees in christianity where he's frustrated and often exclaiming you know why won't god make himself plain right he doesn't Mm -hmm. like this cryptic shit the faith like he wants to see it to believe it do you think all the things of the earth and the heavens have been made for no other reason except that we should eat and make money and spawn children and kill and die. What a purpose for creation. If anything is beyond belief, that is. God said, burn away the old world and let a new one rise from the ashes. As the Son of God rose from the death, he died for us. Sahak is just going off in the gladiator locker room about Jesus. Yeah. And it's he's really <laughs> laying it on thick. He's like denying Mars oh, and yeah. saying all this yeah. like really radical shit. And he clearly should not be doing that in no. the in the locker room of the gladiator arena. Yeah, there's a time and, so and this, a place, you know. This gets them into deep shit. When bam, the centurions and everyone sort of storm in and, and arrest uh Sahak and, and Barabbas mm-hmm. for preaching, even though of course Barabbas preached nothing. No such you know? thing. Did you see him, Barabbas? Tell us what you what saw. Happened Tell on us the third what you morning. saw in Tell the us garden, Barabbas. A long time ago. I saw a man. Some people say he was a That's enough. son of God. You've condemned yourselves. But then, yes, they're, they're of course, arrested and dragged in front of Rufio. Yeah, Sahak says, basically, fine, put me to death because I believe, I believe in God. And, you know, Rufio is trying to be lenient. Rufio is trying. These are his prize fighters. Right. He lays it all out, you know, like, okay, uh, if you say you believe, you're going to be tortured. It's going to be pretty brutal. And then you're going to be executed. And that's not going to be pleasant either. You still think you want to say you believe and he's like oh yeah i'm sure of it and then yes that's when barabbas is like 
Um, no, I don't. I, I don't believe in anything. <laughs> you know? Look, I, yeah, I dabbled. I didn't right. inhale, though. You know, <laughs> poor guy. Yeah, he gets uh, gets a spear in the gut from Torvald in a raining coliseum, and again, a very striking uh, sequence. I feel like just like Fleischer films, like the the Roman pageants pageantry so well in the Mm -hmm. widescreen just filling the frame with these you know uh, shapes and lines that he's playing with these soldiers in the circus you know yeah we are then treated to the festivities of the Colosseum and the Gladiator Arena. And the we see the second day of the festival where Barabbas has to go up against the grinning Torvald. Oh, my God. Who is just chugging wine and trampling people like it's his day job, which it is. His, yeah, his, his fights are just so brutal i mean a lot of a lot of great net stuff in this movie um when he like tosses a net over that guy and just like drags him all around the stadium you could feel that dust and that dirt getting in those open wounds there's like a very brief shot where you can you see the man wrapped up in the net and you see the blood like pouring out of him but he's still like completely caked in dirt would have been wild to see it in person. You know? <laughs> yeah, when, oh. Thumbs down, thumbs down. <laughs> and this is what I alluded to earlier, you know, in talking about the characters who who don't quite, you know, fit the bill of being in a sort of large-scale biblical epic. Like, Jack Palance, like, completely redeems all of them in his performance because he is nothing but sound and fury on that chariot. And eventually faces... Barabbas now, one by one. And, you know, Torvald, it was established earlier, doesn't think much of Barabbas as a gladiator. So he goes in extremely confident that he's going to crush this old fish, I think is what he calls him earlier. Yeah, and I mean, it's a real David and Goliath type moment, not to, you know, undermine how beefy and huge Barabbas is, but he does repurpose the net in order to take down Torvald in like an incredibly inventive way. He uses that net to tangle up the wheel of the chariot, which causes the whole thing to like collapse and toss Torvald across the stadium. And he does best him with his resourcefulness. I think it's worth pointing out too, yes, that resourcefulness because Barabbas is a brute, but he does not win and succeed by being a brute, right? So I think mm-hmm. it's reflective of uh, his journey, not necessarily towards Christianity, but his approximation to it. And so he has this more thoughtful kind of wily approach uh, where he doesn't just you know, face down the chariot mm-hmm. and get trampled like the other guys. He dodges and waits. And afterwards, we get another amazing moment, which is... As Barabbas stands over Torvald's body, he's handed the dagger and expected to kill him. Uh, And of course, we're thinking, is he or isn't he? Because he's like... Sahak showed him the power of mercy. Right. He's learned the power of mercy. And it, it dwells in this moment as he looks to the crowd and they all... You know, thumbs thumbs down. down. And then he's like, okay. And he looks over to Nero. And what do you think he's going to do? He just very casually, like, get rid of him. And as an audience, I found it to, yeah, be like a very powerful moment. Because then 
Bravis just fucking stabs him, just <laughs> yeah. stabs him below yeah. screen space. Uh, yeah. Again, he goes Old just, Testament on yeah, it. Yeah, he does. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this has clearly been established. This is a guy that has no problem killing another man. That's just kind of the life he's led, as mm-hmm. he points out. You know, the son of a the son of a whore uh, who was just kicked into the gutter into this world. It's what a man can understand. That's what he said when he entered the arena. And he and he proves that. Like, I get this. That's very clear. This guy tried to kill me. Fuck it. I'm going to kill his ass. Yep. You know? And then, yes, he's just dispatched unceremoniously. Well, I guess you could say very ceremoniously <laughs> by the, the thousands of people like giving you a thumbs down symbol. And then he's given the baton of freedom. And... Nero says, uh, this is for your remarkable persistence in life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And makes him a free man. And this Barabbas is... Barabbas is not an idiot. He's no Torval. He takes that baton and he fucking runs. Yeah, <laughs> there, there, yeah there's no question that he is going to accept this, you know? Yeah. I mean, again, he's, he's practical, a man of the world, you know? Uh, and so at the two hour mark in this two hour and 20 minute long film, he is finally... Free. What does he do with his time as a free man? Well, he wonders certain questions like, Jesus was killed instead of me. There must have been a reason. Why did he choose me? Why am I alive? Why am I still alive? But part of that journey is is through him also right after he leaves the arena and going to this sort of like awful public dumping ground where they throw the the, yeah. the dead gladiators to find Sahak's corpse yes. mm-hmm. and deliver his corpse to Ernest Borgnine and the Christians. Who gives him a dressing down. Why should you believe it? When the light shone, you wouldn't accept it. When the dark came, you denied it. When the spirit of God beckoned, you refused it. When Sahak says your life is kept for some purpose, Why should you believe it? To make a gag for your conscience, is that it? You believe it because it suits you. Or maybe if Sahak stood before you now, then you would say you believed, you would repent and love God. It would be easy. But what strength would your belief have then? Barabbas has to concede that's pretty accurate. It's really his lowest point, I think, you know, when he's sitting there with the body of this this actual sort of saintly figure, Sahak, and and handing his corpse over to this this group of Christians who ostensibly reject him, yeah. ostensibly reject Barabbas, saying, you're either in or you're out, you know, none of this, as you said, Marsh, like, when it suits you, you know, so sure, give us Sahak and we will take care of him, but you are not welcome here, more or less. And it certainly doesn't feel like the the most like appealing lifestyle I, either. I mean, they're just like hunkered down in the catacombs. It's it's like a really grim, you know, Christian party that he arrives to when he's delivering his Sahak's body. And to top it all off, he exits the catacombs to find that Rome is burning. <laughs> so classic. The whole place is burning down. And in this moment of vulnerability. Barabbas thinks about his life. He thinks about Rachel and her prophecies for the Christian kingdom. And Sahak's as well, because he also prophesied, you know, the coming of the angels, the burning of the old world. And so he sees the world on fire. And finally, 
heeds what he thinks is the call because he hears in the streets the Christians are burning Rome. And Barabbas thinks, hell yes. (laughs) And he immediately grabs a torch and just starts lighting stuff on fire. He only later learns, of course, that it was a false flag. Nero did it. You fucking blew it, Barabbas. He misread the situation. He thought... God was coming, and now this was a good time for his beliefs to yeah. sort of shift into full Christian mode. Yeah, and he was also, like, in that moment, like, finally, these goddamn Christians have got a fucking spine. Like, they're actually <laughs> doing something. <laughs> if they got an action plan. I can get yeah. in on this shit. I understand this. Yeah. Again, it's like the, the violence of the arena. I understand this. And is instantly arrested by a group of Roman, <laughs> yeah. like, centurions again. They're like, drop that torch, freeze, you know? <laughs> yeah. And he's just like ah fuck you know here i go again he's thrown uh in the slammer with a bunch of other presumably uh sort of like christian political prisoners and he comes in there and that's like the joke the jailer makes as they throw him in because uh this guy admitted to being christian that makes him the most honest one among you and then sort of like slams (laughs) the jailhouse door i love those those like moments feel like like from crime films a nice wise crack from the jailer as he (laughs) throws barabbas in and uh it's not just uh, a bunch of faceless nameless people in there peter is in there who uh, we saw at the beginning of the film in the sort of crucifixion era and now is locked up uh, and gets into it with Barabbas in the prison. Yeah, he's like, you don't remember me, do you? And Barabbas doesn't remember him. And and Peter has to remind him how his own journey, Barabbas's journey, began you know like let's measure all this up barabbas you and i once sat together like this face to face and you asked me a question you know and it was about the fishing net right he talks about the 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 barabbas couldn't understand what they were doing and and all that and it's really in this like realization this 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 journey that now comes full circle for barabbas after about 25 years of just suffering that it does all now sort of dawn on him. Right, because even Peter says to him, you know, uh, you were as mistaken then as you are again now. So ultimately summarizing our two-plus-hour trip with Brabus (laughs) as being, uh, this guy hasn't learned a goddamn thing. (laughs) When Barabbas finally turns at the end, I was like, ah, bummer. Like, I I liked my chosen one. I liked my guy who was, you know, more earthy, a bit resistant. Uh, I liked the way he sort of soldiered on. Yeah, Peter's Peter's kind of a prick in that scene, I'll be honest. Yeah, no doubt. He hasn't been through what Barabbas has has been through. So he gives him, you know, the sort of like uh, the summary of the film uh, where he teaches Barabbas that, don't you understand by being the opposite of Jesus, you're as close to him as anyone? In fact, maybe even closer, right? Uh, Again, this sort of universal manhood, universal personhood, like... It's the friends we make along the way. That's right. It's <laughs> it's the friends we make along the way. And it's also, yeah, it's the conflict as well, right? That's sort of what Peter, Peter says to him is that, you know, it, it's through 
that conflict that he had and that hesitance that he had. The doubt. The doubt that he came to believe, right, through that conflict. And he's like, that's it, you know? You missed the point the whole goddamn time. The conflict was the point, Barabbas. Wisen up. But they're not going to wise up because they're all going to be executed. <laughs> yeah. By Nero's false flag. <laughs> Fucking Romans, man. So, yeah, the film ends on a pretty grim note yeah. as we see uh, Barabbas on the cross. Where he should have been in the first place, right. arguably. Exactly. He finally gets uh, what was coming to him, uh, presumably. Well, I think... For me, looking at it through the lens of, you know, classic Hollywood biblical epics, you know, like looking through that lens, not my own cynical, atheist, you know, godless commie lens of 2021, (laughs) but this is what it means to be a Christian, to suffer, and the suffering is what brings us close to God, you know? It's it's the doubt, it's the suffering, it's this. It isn't, uh, you know toppling Rome through fire and, and blood and violence. It's it's believing quietly and accepting whatever comes to you for those beliefs, not forsaking, you know, those who have also suffered for their beliefs. The kingdom of heaven is within. Free your mind and your ass will follow. <laughs> I just wish he was gifted um, an eclipse to accompany his his uh, crucifixion as well. It felt like kind of a bummer that he didn't have such a holy, beautiful final movement as uh, Jesus was granted at the beginning of the film. Well, God's not really into communicating with Barabbas. And if he had been, maybe he would have come along sooner. With this film, it's, it's very much a clear-cut chosen one narrative. It is a a figure who is chosen and is constantly calling into question throughout the production why he's been chosen. A question that haunts nearly every scene of the film. And the Beast of War is also haunted by this question, but in a way that is not nearly as resolute and clear as it is in Barabbas. Because, you know, Andy, when you were introducing the film, I think you brought up a really great point, and is that trying to determine who is the chosen one in this film because while it initially seems like it may be one, it then sort of transitions to another and who ends up coming out to be like overall the chosen one I think is like a lingering question. But the film does begin with a scene that it would be very typical for a chosen one narrative. We have a village that is raided and destroyed. We have someone that dies so brutally. And then we have someone arrive who is tasked with his new station in life. And it's it's that type of sequence that you would find often in a chosen one narrative. It's, it's the, the, the transition of power onto someone who is not necessarily expecting it at that point in their life yet. And then all of a sudden having this responsibility thrown on them. Yeah, because when Taj's dad dies at the hands of the Soviets in the beginning, he's sort of like, oh, well, yeah, my brother will be Khan now. And they're like, yo. Let me your, show you your brother. Your, bro- your brother's dad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we should yeah. probably point out what that means. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, at the culmination of this, this like Soviet, you know, attack, this, this Red Army attack on basically a seemingly peaceful village in mm-hmm. in Afghanistan though there might be some mujahideen fighters there they they go uh the extra mile and kill just about every single person they can find in this in this village in a in a very horrifying way and 
Taj's brother, who we don't know is Taj's brother, is just a, a, a Mujahideen fighter that's trying to defend his village from this, this Soviet attack. And he is after himself, you know, bravely disabling one of the Soviet tanks captured. And then the Russian troops grab him and they 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 drag him over to their their officer played by George Zunza as Daskal their the the leader of this the Soviet tank and he says watch what happens get the villagers here show them what happens to rebels and he has Taj's brother placed underneath the treads of the tank and orders Jason Patrick Kovarchenko to drive over him. And I think the way it, it's shot, it's horrific because you like see just a, a even a brief, quick, you know, almost like uh, subliminal cut of like watching this guy's like feet get crushed first. Yeah, get like, yeah, bent backwards. And I think that there's something really interesting between the two films in terms of how brutality is expressed and represented. And we had talked about the stoning sequence in Barabbas, and there is also a stoning sequence in this that we'll talk about at a later point. <laughs> the stoning sequence in Barabbas is so extremely expressive, and there's like an elegant camera move. Here, it's very unadorned, and that is not like a negative for the film. It is just like a, a matter of, of fact. It's that quality that makes it feel brutal in a different way. And that's the thing. It's a very bright film. It's It doesn't have that like depth of shadow, except for sequences inside the tank, but it doesn't have that type of lighting you would find obviously in a biblical epic and specifically Barabbas. But instead, when you have a man lying under the tread tracks of this tank and you see his feet start to bend backwards and it's all just lit and bright and right there in your face, it has this authentic, grotesque quality to it that elicits a very different reaction, I feel like, a, a much less spiritual one than something like Barabbas does. And I, I don't know if you guys are aware of the backstory behind the film, but the, the writing of the film. So you probably saw in the credits of the film that it's based off of a play by the screenwriter, William Mastra Simone, who was a, a playwright, and he does have a few screenwriting credits to his name. But do you know the backstory for the play, Nana Wate, he started to read the news about the war in Afghanistan between the Afghans and the Soviets. And he said it just started to occupy his mind. And he, he looked at his own theater where they were putting on this play of his. And he just said, like, it all just felt like bullshit suddenly to me, knowing that this thing was going on and seeing these Mujahideen fighting bravely and the atrocities that were being committed by the Soviets. And so he suddenly decided... I need to go to Afghanistan. I need to go see this for myself. But he did end up, you know, to spare you a long story, going to Afghanistan. Like, he actually went to Afghanistan and eventually, like, taken in front of an Afghani warlord and, and sort of said to him, like, I just want to see what's going on over here. I'm a playwright and, you know, I'd love to be able to show people, like, what's actually happening. And they said, okay, well, fine, then, then come along with us. And he was with the Mujahideen very briefly, uh, the screenwriter. Like, he actually went with the Mujahideen out on, like, a, you know, a mountain excursion, and they ended up capturing a group of Russians. The Afghans ended up just, like, executing all of these Russian soldiers, and he was just, like, so horrified by this. And he said that was, like, his second day in Afghanistan. Again, unadorned sheer brutality and the realism of it all. As far as the writing's concerned, like, much of what is being portrayed comes directly from this dude's 
brief but but intense like firsthand experience like in Afghanistan. Yeah, it, there is like a very plain brutality to the moments of violence in this film and it also it, it doesn't surprise me then that as you're describing the origins of the, that original production because it's an angry film too and that doesn't surprise me then that it comes from someone who had had witnessed things firsthand. On the one hand, it's very typical in its late 80s Hollywood anti-Soviet sentiments. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, speaking to that experience, Andy, it obviously is atypical in its humanizing treatment of Islamic, quote unquote, freedom fighters, right? Especially given, you know, the rest of U.S. history, right? So it is this extreme anomaly because it is taking very earnestly and very seriously, like the Pashtus and their fight. And yeah, it's stereotyped, but everything in this movie is stereotyped. So like, yeah, it it lacks in certain areas there, but like that anger is there, the realism is there. And it's interesting that the violence is is so matter of fact, because like the film, we should say, at least I found it to be like very stylish and very stylistic, at least working out in open locations like that. There's a lot of movement. It's very kinetic. And my chosen one uh, for the episode is Douglas Milsom, the cinematographer, who uh, (laughs) was a former operator for the noir legend John Alcott. And Milsom worked with Kubrick and also shot Highlander. So uh, I like the way... (laughs) There can only be one. (laughs) Yes, there can only be one cinematographer of Highlander, and it's the guy that shot The Beast of War. And I think it... I really enjoyed, yeah, just kind of like the, the chase element and the visual propulsion of this film. But I do want to mention another thing that I guess like how this film now is such a bizarre object, right? Because you watch this movie and it it's about, you know, a Soviet tank and some some Pashtu fighters and they're all like, yeah, like Americans and no one's doing accents. So everyone plays as American. Except for Stephen Bauer who is speaking right. Pashtu. Yeah, Stephen <laughs> Bauer's, yes, I should clarify. All the Russians are just acting like Americans. Americans, uh, mm-hmm. And Stephen Bauer is speaking Pashtu. But even with the opening, it's like an 11 minute massacre. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking like, this is just me lie, right? This is yeah. an American recreation of me lie with the Soviets. And I'm already thinking like so much American consciousness is like embedded within this film that has no American characters. Right. Yeah. And it just continues because again, what do you think this movie's about? Well, it's like, don't fucking invade Afghanistan, you fucking assholes or whatever. Like imperialists, you know, like you're always going to fail. You're always going to die here. It's a desert. Like you don't belong here. You're dead. Which is why it even opens, you know, the first title card is actually, you know, Kipling's (laughs) poem about (laughs) Afghanistan. And now it's like the only thing you can do in Afghan is essentially like blow out your brains, like because otherwise it's going to be a more horrible ending to your life, you know? Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, you know, I think, Marsh, again, that's particularly why this movie has always held a place of interest for me, because it is this weird anomaly. Ultimately, this this question of, like, do good guys go bad? When does, you know, a good guy go bad? And that's primarily seen through Daskal, because George Zunza, who gives... I think the best performance of his career. Uh, and, and it's also amazing for those who know who George Zunza is and are, are Zunza heads. This is the skinniest you will oh, ever yeah. see him. Like he lost like a hundred pounds 
to to be in this role. Uh, and Do you think he lost it in the tank sweating, or oh because it was such a big role, he worked out for the only time in his career? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. Probably both, you know. You know, there is a point, you know, when they're on their mission, uh, which really is now at this point just to escape the the Mujahideen after this brutal massacre, where, you know, he's trying to justify everything. And he's like, no, 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 no. We're the good guys. I fought the fucking Nazis in Stalingrad, you know? They called me Tank Boy. I was eight years old. And, you know, in Stalingrad, they used to lower me down onto tanks and I'd stuff Molotovs under them, which is, again, ironic considering what's happening to them but that's the point you know is that he's like no 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 we fight fascists we're the soviet union we're the red army we're the good guys here you're also comparison to vietnam i think it's it's part of the reason why this film just like died on the vine when it came out Columbia Pictures basically pulled their support from it, and partly because Rambo 3 had just been out and and was such a huge hit and was an even more, you know, flag-waving America. Look, we're supporting the Mujahideen. We're the good guys, you know, Soviet's bad. But this takes a very different kind of look, where Rambo is the redemptive hero of Vietnam. Like, no, Vietnam is heroic. We just... The politicians fucked us over or whatever, right? In this, it's, it is invoking Vietnam, but it's doing so to make us, you know, question, like, what we did. Like, we are, the Americans are those fucking Russians. It is a really odd object in that way because they're not disguising the fact that they're Americans um, and whether this is an intentional quality of the film or not. It is interesting how it leads to that type of reading of the film. Like, they're not trying to mask themselves as Russians. They are very clearly just Americans, like kind of going through the motions as Russians in this landscape, Mm -hmm. not just necessarily a critique of the Soviet activities, but more like predicting how we would behave later on is so compelling and strange when realizing that this film is from 1988 from, it's just like one of those weird movie objects. Like this isn't something that would behave or feel this way if you were reading it, or I mean, maybe it's a play but just the fact that it was like kind of this norm for a time period in movies where American actors were playing people in different countries and either doing accents or just like coming off as like just someone from somewhere else like that was a normal thing then we get weird things like this like this weird alchemical like strange film I would rather have Hollywood actors not doing accents I agree yeah you know unintentionally it, it creates this kind of weird space in this movie of like an endless war that seems to be going on forever by the same participants. And they just sort of get lost in this like, obviously in the space of the film as they're just sort of like wandering around in their tank. Yeah, to your point, Andy, the film in that sense of this space of a, this, this forever war, liminal space, you know, like the film does have this nice kind of like odyssey quality lost in an endless landscape. And it really does feel like it, even though they're actually at a certain point just like trapped in a gigantic cul-de-sac. Yeah. It does like yeah. drift into like, I would almost say like magical realism at yeah. times, you yes, know? Definitely. And that's certainly where I think also some of the connections between these two films come in with some of the more spiritual sides of the the various characters and their journeys. And right? the Bible. 
And of course, yes, the Bible, which, yes. you know, in, in the previous segment, Ryan, you, you invoked David and Goliath, and that plays a huge part in this film. Because mm-hmm. we, should, we should point out that, that essentially what happens after this massacre, uh, and Taj has been declared the Khan now, you know, he's the big shot, he's got to lead everyone, he's got to make the decisions and the choices, and himself, you know, is sort of struggling with this, but they have been gifted a slingshot seemingly out of, out of the heavens an RPG launcher. So they have this RPG and they know that with this RPG, they could disable that tank. They could take the tank out. So they take this RPG and that begins their journey of trying to track down the beast of war. And, and so we're seeing their perspective of Taj trying to lead his people, keep them together and, and, and help bring justice or badal as it's known revenge in their pashtun language this this symbol that they have of ultimate cosmic justice against this tank but we do have jason patrick's journey that we're sort of cross-cutting to in the tank where he is sort of also going like man this is bad. What we're doing is very bad here. And there's another figure in the tank that is sort of the bridge between these two worlds. We have Samad, who is an Afghan that is now attached. He's volunteered to fight with the Soviets. He's ultimately an idealist. You know, he represents the sort of collaborators, the people who in Afghanistan thought, you know, the Soviet Union is going to help us. They're going to modernize us. And and I think he used the phrase, we're but a flea caught in the tail of a bear, you know? And if we could just get through this difficult period, think of all the... <laughs> yeah, well, he's thinking about it historically because he's a Marxist, as he says, you know, to mm-hmm. Zunza, that he can reconcile dialectical materialism and Allah. Yeah, um, yeah. But so ultimately, yeah, he's thinking about it historically because I do think one of the interesting parts is when Jason Patrick is sort of grilling Samad and he kind of reveals himself to yeah be playing the long game and thinking like yeah maybe he's like a a nationalist like a communist nationalist who's ultimately thinking yes we'll you know get the help of the Soviets and create the modern Afghan state and Jason Patrick's sort of like whoa buddy you know don't be don't be saying that around the commander you know (laughs) like yeah and also I'm from Russia bro it's it's not gonna think it's not gonna be what you think it is right <laughs> and we do, yeah, and we do learn that uh, Kovarchenko has been, you know, busted down uh, several ranks and jobs because of insubordination. Because right? he thinks for himself. Yeah, that's what that's his file right. says. Yeah, it's very, again, this very American idea of like, right, this is our hero in the Soviet tank, the free thinker, you know, yeah. <laughs> that sort of just stereotype or whatever. But I want to mention, too, as we paint this portrait of this lost tank crew, who else is in the tank? Well, we got to mention there's some important people. Number one, Stephen Baldwin, who mm-hmm. I believe is drinking a modified brake fluid. No, that's oh, the that's other Don guy. Harvey. Okay. Yeah, Don yeah. Harvey. Don <laughs> Harvey, who we last saw playing infield for the black socks in eight men out here as a brake fluid guzzling uh you know <laughs> tank gunner tank gunner give it to minsky you never told me she sent you nudes of herself give it to me kaminsky <laughs> wow she got that nympho look well i got the half i want <laughs> <gasps> Son of a bitch! Fuck off me! 
Okay. Uh-huh. What the hell is going on? And you know what? Again, like I'm glad you brought both of them up because I think they do a, a great job in this movie, like with sort of balancing out all the personalities in that tank. You know, Kaminsky, this sort of like brake fluid guzzling, uh, thoughtless kind of like just soldier, you know, like let's just do the job. I will obey whatever order's given to me, even if I'll crack wise or bitch about it. And then Golikov, who's kind of like this just sort of like lost puppy in the tank. And he's sort of bouncing around from everybody as these as this internal struggle starts to really boil over inside the tank. You know, this this head-to-head that is is emerging between George Zunza and Samad, the Afghani interpreter. Yeah, he does develop this like paranoid obsession that Samad is scheming and working with the enemy and trying to like deliver the tank into the hands of the Mujahideen. And it's really truly baseless. I mean, there's initially this suspicion where they have a misfire with the tank, and Zunza starts asking, you know, like who's been touching the tank shell? Stephen Ball. Baldwin had loaded it, but it had been given to him by Samad. And then immediately, you know, all these things working in his head, he's just assuming, oh, Samad has something to do with this. He's been tinkering with it. He's trying to sabotage us like, you know, this Afghani. We can't trust him. But it's baseless. And Samad is, you know, he even offers in that moment, he's like, I'll take care of the shell. Even though I haven't dealt with this before, like, if you don't trust me, I'll prove myself right now. And he's just constantly setting up traps for Samad to fail because he has developed this paranoia narrative in his head that he's trying to confirm through his authority mm-hmm. he's trying to prove to his men like listen I, the way i see the world and the way i see our situation there is no free thinking here you you can't forge your own path like you need to stay in line you need to stay in order and like this is how i understand how all of this is happening there's a bit of a billy bud Bo travai thing going on yeah. because in samad Daskal sees the failures of Afghanistan and his own failures and his Mm -hmm. whole life as this soldier. And he just looks at Samad and wants to kill him, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. In, in like, uh, sailor superstitions, he becomes the Jonah of the tank where everything that befalls them is, is his fault. As you said, Ryan, he's just this like suddenly cursed, cursed figure, you know, in their tank. And I would point out that I think there is a little bit more complexity to Samad because there are a couple moments earlier, like one of their tactics as they're moving around through all these villages is that they poison wells, they poison water sources. And Samad, on several occasions, was given the poison canisters to dump in the well. And his order from Descal is to hide the canister so that people don't know the well's poison. They'll drink from it. But if they see the poison canister near the well, they'll know it's poisoned. They won't drink and we won't be able to just like murder people, I guess, right? And Samad has the canister and he's poisoning one of the wells and he dumps a little bit in and just throws the whole canister in the well as a sign to whoever would come up on that well don't drink from this well. And then later they go to a water source that they know the Mujahideen are going to be headed towards and they they order Samad to poison it again. Leaves it out. Right, he leaves the canister out and that is really for Descal where he really now is like, all right, this guy's working with them. But I personally do believe that Samad did that intentionally. I think that Samad is the idealist and he does believe in what the Soviet Union is doing, but he has a line. And that's really where it comes out. (laughs) 
yeah, he definitely was doing that on purpose, but it's not because of his loyalty to the Mujahideen cause. It's because he just doesn't want to commit like a grotesque war crime, right? right like right, poisoning yeah. people that he just finds that to be so offensive. Yeah. But even then he's, he's doing it in what might to him seem like a tactful way. Yeah. It's not like immediately undermining the authority that he has like sort of submitted himself to. Yeah. For Jason Patrick's character, like it's, it's through Samad that he learns about certain Afghan traditions. Yes, he does. He learns about Badal, he learns about revenge, and, and he has a very clear understanding of this, but he's also taught about Nanawate. Nanawate? The obligation to give um, sanctuary to all those who ask. All right. To all? All? Even the enemy? Oh. What if I kill your brother? And you come for Badal, revenge. And I ask for uh, Nanawati. Then I would be obligated to feed, clothe, and protect you. It's incredibly civilized. (laughs) (laughs) He can't believe it with his little glasses. Yeah, yeah. Right after we crushed this guy underneath the treads of our Soviet tank. Like, (laughs) wow, incredibly civilized. Well, you know, speaking of these kinds of like inner clashes, I think we should also bring up that in the the Pashtun rebel unit led by Taj to blow up this tank, they're not all Mujahideen fighters. In fact, some of them are just gangsters. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Including my favorite character of the film, Taj's cousin, Mustafa. Mustafa is, yes, the modern Afghan man with aviators uh, and an RPG, and he's in it for the loot, you know. Taj doesn't like that, you know, he might have, you know, taken some gold pieces out of the teeth of some dead Russians uh, (laughs) during this war. And when Mustafa is introduced... He he says my favorite line in the movie. I always said, have faith in Allah and keep a hidden pistol. <laughs> and this is like our first introduction to him as like the cool guy who's going to be comically like taking part but not taking part in this journey throughout as it suits him. Yeah, a, a sort of loose confederate, a, a sort of reluctant ally, you know? <laughs> and when they get their first opportunity to, like, hit the tank with the RPG, he just totally in a in a, in a total derky move. Oh, derky <laughs> alert. Yeah, fumbles with the RPG and just, like... <laughs> <laughs> it, was like, it, made me, it reminded me of Four Lions, yeah. you know, the scene of Four oh, Lions. Dude, that's with the exactly what I thought of. Yeah. yeah, where he's just kind of like, uh, he can't figure out how to work it, and then he ends up just like skyrocketing one of the, the mm-hmm. shots and misses the tank by a mile. And this, you know, sets Taj off, you know, like, you said you knew how to work this thing. Come on, man. And he goes, I'm Khan. I demand to be the one who explodes the tank. And Mustafa's <laughs> like, hey, you know, Uncle, your 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 nephew's a bit of a hothead here, you know, and that's when Taj gets his first lesson, you know, in his first challenge of being quote the chosen one, where his uncle, this sort of elderly, you know, Afghan fighter, has to say to him, "Hey, you know, like being Khan isn't just 
declaring yourself Khan. You have to grow into it. You have to learn, you know, how to be the leader, the chosen one. And earn it. Right. It's too bad because I do wish that more of the film spent time with them because that narrative is rather interesting. And because it's funny, like we do get that moment with the uncle, but then it's, I think it's the very next scene with them is when he does the classic chosen one moment where he, it's like a total reversal and he goes to his uncle and he says like, am I fit to be the con? And then his uncle's like, ah, yes, like, ah, my lad, like, you know, you are asking if you can be con, which means you are con, like, congratulations, like, you figured it out. And it reminded me of, like, another uh, favorite chosen one narrative of mine, which is Monty Python's The Life of Brian, where he's denying the fact that he's the Messiah, and they're like, to deny that you are the Messiah means you are the Messiah. Like, (laughs) you've done it, like, congratulations. And so it's, it's funny, that's like another, like, a constant i would say in a chosen one narrative so that tickled me in that moment when it happened you know and again this is hollywood you know asserting itself like you you get much more of the russian slash american perspective of things you spend most Mm -hmm. of your time with the tank and it is a dual narrative but right there's i I think they're very careful to like okay well let's not play up the Mujahideen that much, you know, like. And and I think this is where the film becomes something that I could see studio executives like really scratching their head about because essentially like we're in the tank. We're supposed to sort of see ourselves as the Russians, (laughs) you know, like, and, and that's where I think people kind of scratch their head because it's like, well, they're us, but they're the bad guys. And like, you know, Jason Patrick, his journey is essentially the one that we're supposed to go on. So really, while we do have, you know, Khan, you know, Taj, who's the Khan and, and the anointed chosen one learning his lessons very quickly, Jason Patrick's journey is the one that I think we're really supposed to sort of like project ourselves into. And that all boils over when suddenly Dascal finally decides that's it. We need to kill Samad. He's a fucking traitor. And there's a point where he sends Samad out. Grotesquely beautiful night sequence where, you know, the tank is as a moment of rest and they set up motion sensors all around their tank. And suddenly, you know, the motion sensors are all firing off and they think that the Mujahideen are all around them. So in a panic, you know, Dascal orders them all weapons fire in a 360 degree turn. And we just see the tank in like total darkness suddenly illuminated as all the weapons of this beast of war just start unloading into the darkness, including like an arc of a flamethrower mm-hmm. that lights a perfect circle around the tank. I loved that so much. It reminded me of like a desert version of Predator when they just fire into the jungle for like five minutes. Yeah. Like that's what this is. Just being so paranoid as soldiers that you just unload everything. Into the darkness. Into, into the darkness. And there's a nice really like high angle shot of it where we see, yeah, just like, a flamethrower spinning in a 360. <laughs> yeah. Like, that kicks ass. But then Dascal sends, of course, Samad out to go investigate. And once he's out of the tank, he particularly orders Kovarchenko to shoot him. He says, do you have Samad in your sights? Take him out. He's a traitor. And that moment is where Kovarchenko refuses. And, and before anybody can decide what to do, Samad's back in the tank and informs them that they did kill quite a few deer. It was a herd of deer that had surrounded them. But again, in that moment, Marsh, I think is like where for me, like the sort of like magical realism, liminal space we're talking about of like empires, like 
just spinning around in a fucking desert shooting nothing. Right. You know, you know? like that's what we're looking at. There. Yes. It's a total metaphor for like <laughs> every military conflict we've been in since World War II, basically, you know, and it doesn't matter if the uniform is Russian or American. This is what empires do. They the, as as they start to crumble, their paranoia leads them to just like start firing on anything and everything that moves near them to defend themselves, to protect their their, you know, sanctity or whatever. And Samad does eventually meet his end. Gets a gets a 50 cal in the back. He does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just after his prayer was interrupted, he it's this it's this <sighs> tragic sequence where he does just like quietly step aside, sets himself up to pray, but then he's ordered to check how deep the river is and to see if the tank can cross and to determine whether the ground is muddy or whether it's solid. And Zunzo orders him to walk into this river and straight in with all his gear on, the water's freezing cold, and he shoots him in the back. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge turning point then for the soldiers because there are those that align themselves with that action and those that call it into question. And then Kovrachenko, of course, calls it into question, and he is sum summarily strung up on a rock like Jesus Christ, not mm -hmm. to get, you know, once again biblical here, but he is booby-trapped and left to die on the, on the rock. Essentially, if you think about it, he is crucified yes. on that rock yes. and left to die. He's basically dead, yep. but he's resurrected. Yep. He's brought back to life. As first, this group of Afghan women who, uh, you know, included among them the widow of the man who was crushed under the tank at the beginning, come upon him and attempt, as Ryan sort of alluded to earlier, a, a public stoning of, of poor Kovrachenko. The rest of the Afghani fighters arrive and, and put an end to the execution and decide what to do with him. And, and as Mustafa says, you know, hey, let's kill this son of a bitch, he starts... He starts uttering the word that Samad taught him, Nanawate, and this stops them all in their tracks. And they like sort of freak out in this moment, like, what the <laughs> hell? How does he know about Nanawate? And again, I love Mustafa too, because Mustafa like has the best line there. He says, I think he says something like, even a crow can learn a single word. Yep. Like, fuck this guy, let's kill him. You know, yeah, because they're like, does he know any other words in our language? And he doesn't. Yeah, but but all that mattered was the one word he he learned. <laughs> it is a bit of a cartoonish moment because it is all of them stopping dead in their tracks, just proclaiming like the sacred word. Yeah, I don't know. I, I like I believe that there there is like th that significance there, but it is also it's a bit overplayed. I thought yeah. in terms of like how they would have maybe reacted with such shock. And awe. Yes. And though while they are kind of arguing about whether or not, you know, a, a Russian. Yeah, someone's murderer, like, this is for Afghans only. <laughs> right? you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> though, and again, Taj quickly learning, Khan, you know, making tough decisions, yes. having to see the bigger picture. He does say, but wait a second, hold on here, slow down. But why was he abandoned by his tankers? Why was he tied up here? Right? There's a reason he was left behind. And it isn't just to slow us down. Like, there's a reason he was thrown out by his own tank. And so he orders them to, like, no, we're going to give him Nanawate. We're going to give him sanctuary. And it's a good thing that they did. Yes. Because the RPG and all the, and all the excitement uh, was broken. You know, it was dropped during, you know, one of their, their battles. And the only man who can fix it 
is Koverchenko. Yeah, and this is when the film really transitions into its new phase of like the hunt, as you were alluding to in your intro about the it feeling like they were going after a, a mythical beast, you know, the, and it's like a wounded animal that's crossing this harsh landscape. It's it's leaking oil. It's it's overheated. It's sort of frantically trying to find its way around. Kaminsky drank the brakes. Yeah. He drank the brakes. He drank the brake <laughs> fluid, and they are they're stalking. It and they're when they talk about the tank and where it's going, they refer to it with the knowledge of of seasoned hunters. They 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 speak of the tank as if it's this. It has its a mind of its own. Like oh, as an animal, like this is where it will go. Yeah, and so the question at this point, right, is Kovrachenko gonna take revenge on his former Russian comrades, right? And so in that moment too, he becomes the new chosen one mm-hmm. or another. Other chosen one who then himself has to choose, make this big decision to go after this tank or not. Uh, and ultimately, obviously, he does. And I, I, I got to admit, like, for a minute, I was thinking, like, all right, so, like, what if this guy goes full Mujahideen? He doesn't go that far, but he he joins the hunt. He For joins, a minute, he flirts with it. He flirt he flirts with it, but this is a Hollywood film, folks. This is not going to end in Kovarchenko converting to Islam. <laughs> as much as I thought that that would be an, an interesting way to go, he joins the fight. Then they cut to the tank, and it's being covered. Uh, with branches because as the tank crew has discovered very dramatically in a scene when they stop very abruptly that there's a giant ravine in front of them and they entered into a valley that has one entrance and exit and they've already come through it and there's no way out they do have the opportunity though and this is very important they, they, as they stand there at the ravine, they can see through their binoculars Kandahar Road yep. and their redemption, you know? It's so close but so far away. And suddenly a Soviet helicopter approaches that was just sort of wandering around looking for water and they come across the tank. And this helicopter lands and offers them their own sanctuary and their own opportunity to just get the fuck out of there. But Daskal has never lost a tank, and he's not going to do so now. The The helicopter pilot even says, like, all right, you guys hop in, we'll get out of here, I'll call an airstrike in on the tank, blow it up. And Daskal says to him, nobody wastes my tank, and orders Kaminsky and Golikov back in the tank. Yeah, they're already partying, like, on the helicopter, <laughs> yeah, yeah. thinking about all the vodka that they're going to drink when they get the hell out of there. And George Dunza just, like, so determined, like... Psychotic. He says to them, you're tankers, <laughs> right? Like, in the fucking tank. Yeah, he's he's totally lost it, you know, as this avatar of the, the crumbling empire. Uh, and then we, we lead to the classic, almost, you know, Western-like uh, showdown in the valley as the tank has to go back the way it came to get out of the valley that they're stuck in. And there's a really amazing shot that kind of initiates us into the final sequence when the helicopter flies away and the camera tilts down and all the Mujahideen crew is just like lying camouflaged in the rocks. And in that moment, I, I thought of, you know, Barabbas and thinking like, 
God, just like real things in cinema, like having a helicopter and then tilting down to a bunch of fighters hidden in the rocks, like the immensity of that blocking and that arrangement and that timing, similar to what we saw in Barabbas, like... They really don't make them like that anymore no. with that kind of no, choreography. You know? And you know, an interesting connection between the two films as well is that this movie was shot in Israel. It was shot in the Holy Land of Barabbas. That's correct. <laughs> Absolutely. You got to you gotta go to the desert when you're, when you're doing Chosen Ones, you know? They do a good job making it look like Afghanistan, though. I know that's kind of a weird thing to say, but they... <laughs> There's the the like the pale rocks in in Afghanistan are like evoked in that specific part of the desert they chose to film it in. It doesn't look like Arizona. You know? That's true. That's very true. <laughs> it does not look like Arizona. So it's all hands on deck to catch the tank as it is making its escape. Yeah. And boy, how to describe this sequence? Ooh. They're sort of just like dramatically chasing the tank, right? Because oh, yeah. they have to like catch it before it gets out of the the valley. Yes. The pass. But Taj, you know, the the leader, the chosen one. He has he has a plan. He's aware of certain things. He knows the land and the geography, and he knows knows that he and his fighters can go places that the tank cannot. So as he points out in in a sort of like, you know, a bunch of like gestures between these two men who don't speak the same language, like this tank has to go this way, but we can go over the mountain. We can go over the hill and beat it. Headed off at the pass, as they'd oh, say. Right? <laughs> that's right. And then they fucking blow it up, right? Well, <laughs> <laughs> they attempt to. I mean, yeah, Kovachenko like gets his shot. You know, it's like the swelling moment when he's running in the in the canyon there with Taj, and he's he's trying to set up his shot, but his glasses are broken, so he can never quite get it angled correctly. You know, and he finally gets his chance, and you think it's a direct hit, but it was too direct of a hit. He hit the muzzle of the tank, blowing that up, and then everyone else inside uh, is seemingly fine. Yeah. And it seems like this this like terrible cursed luck yeah. on his end. Um, he right, throws it's still the mobile, RPG. Right? Yes, yeah, yeah, it's still, you know, and the, the Duskal and everyone's celebrating in the tank, like, we're fine, you know, he just hit the muzzle, like, we're almost at the pass. And, and, and Kovachenko's just so upset, he just throws the RPG now totally out of rockets just throws the rpg at the at the fleeing tank and taj looks to the heavens and shouts allah why have you forsaken us you know we did everything i'm the chosen one but but allah steps in allah saves the day <laughs> by by allah you mean the badass women who pushed all the rocks off the ridge. Talk about a stoning. So we should point out that throughout this chase, there has also been on the periphery, like the group of, of you know, Badal seeking Afghan women uh, who at one point are like, let us help you. Look what we've got. And like, they reveal that they have grenades and C4. Like they've got explosives that they also like scavenged off of like the Russian vehicles. So they set the explosives at the top of this pass that triggers the avalanche of rocks that come crashing down upon the tank, busting its tread, sending it off of its track, and now finally completely immobilizing the beast, bringing it down to a halt. And the crew is just inside 
and starting to have a meltdown. <laughs> yeah, as Daskal now uh, gives them their next mission, which is to just blow them all up, blow themselves up with fucking grenades, you know? <laughs> yeah, he hands them all grenades, just yeah. like total madman. Yeah, he says, our standing order, like, if the tanks out of commission become a pillbox, out of ammunition become a bunker, out of time become heroes. Become heroes. And they're like... Bro, I don't think blowing ourselves up in this tank is being heroes. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, then they, uh, you know, Korvachenko basically says, hey, get out of the tank. I'm here, bitch. I'm back. <laughs> and they all march out. And you think that there's now about to be a, a huge moment of, of badal and bloodshed and retribution. But Korvachenko steps in and says, hey, Give them Nana Wate as well, right? The same mercy you showed me. Because he specifically says to Daskal, I want you to be alive to see these people win this war. I want you to see it. And then a helicopter comes out of nowhere and just picks up Kovarchenko. Yes. So Kovarchenko, <laughs> because Taj does. Taj invites him. Is like, come, like right. you're, you're fucking stay with us, man. Yeah, like this was we can my do moment where I'm like, all right, he's just gonna like join the cause full time. Yeah. But no. No. He 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 decides like, no, I'm I I guess I'm a Russian American or whatever. And uh you know, he probably thought about all those creature comforts back in Moscow or wherever and decides like I'm also, I guess, not a yeah, I'm sorry about what I did, but I'm also leaving. Well, because he has this confrontation with Daskal. Like, he finally gets his, his say to Daskal. And he says, like, we're the Nazis this time. You know, you invoked the Nazis and fighting the Nazis during World War II. This ain't fucking World War II. And we are the Nazis. And how can you be a good soldier in a rotten war? But Daskal doesn't escape. No, he does not. Daskal does not escape because as he, Kaminsky and Golikov are, are just sort of like wandering now on foot towards the Kandahar Road, once again, the Afghan women make an appearance on the stage and they chase down Daskal, who is exhausted and he crumbles to the ground. And again, this like totally pathetic moment that like reminded me of, of Jack Palance in the Coliseum in his, you know, this, this great fighter and warrior and champion and soldier now crumbled on the ground. Will he get mercy or will he not? And the Afghan women, of course, thumbs they show the thumbs down shit. on this guy. Yeah, and definitely. I love the little moment where he's like desperately, like he just like buttons up his collar a little bit. He wants to make sure that like if he goes out, he's going out like at least to the best of his ability, like well kept. And he looks at the Afghan women who are just like rushing towards him to beat him to death with stones. And he utters one word, Afghanistan. This is really to me where like the movie again, like it will stay with me forever because of our 20 fucking year war in Afghanistan and this idea that, you know, it's Afghanistan. What did you fucking expect was going to happen? You know, and and for as much of our involvement in like fighting the Soviets through the Mujahideen, through arming them, through creating Osama bin Laden and all the kinds of shit that we did, the CIA, like Afghanistan. The chickens are going to come home to roost again for the empire, you know? Well, at least all the military contractors got rich. Yeah, yeah. So, Ryan, which 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 of the one 
you know, which of these ones, is that how I should say it? <laughs> which, of, which one? Whom do you yeah. choose? Who, who, would you, who would you put your faith in of, of these ones? I think, I think my worldview most aligns with Barabbas. Uh, <laughs> that's for sure. Maybe not where he ends up when he sort of like converts to the faith. I kind of like his uh, earthy, dismissive attitude throughout most of it, like dealing in like the tactile and things that are um, more objective to him, like things he can see and kind of grasp and understand on like a on a human to human level. He certainly you could rely on him to drag you out of a of a classic sulfur mine collapse, as Marsh would put it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, if it's if the question is who do I want to be stuck in a in a sulfur mine during a moment of chaos, it's it's certainly him. Yeah. Well, these were our picks for this week. So Ryan, what uh, what films in the chosen one arena do you uh enjoy (laughs) well when i was a kid i you know we were thinking about like a fantasy chosen one um a film that really registered with me for some odd reason and i haven't returned to this film in maybe 15 years so i'd I'd be curious to now at at this point in my life but that was ron howard's willow with warwick (laughs) davis jesus fights alongside val kilmer that film like really struck a chord with me as a kid and i I, i'd like to return and see what the hell was going on uh in that movie that like for whatever reason I found so attractive. But in terms of a chosen one film now that I could truly recommend and and really believe in, uh, that would be the Jerry Lewis film, The Patsy. And that's a, it's an odd film where there's sort of like a group of TV executives that include John Carradine and Peter Lorre sort of band together and they think we could make a celebrity out of anyone. And it becomes an experiment. And who do they decide to turn into a media sensation? The bellboy Jerry Lewis, the patsy himself. And as the chosen one, he becomes a sensation across the country even before he has a chance to to perform. He becomes a cult of personality. You know, they they develop the image of a chosen one, and it's it's our fool Jerry. What we then see is a series of mishaps as the chosen one is called to act on his destiny. I'm sure, that goes well. It does for the audience. It's a very it's a very, very, very funny movie. Uh Highly recommended. And just another cursed Jerry to add to the pile of um, some of the greats. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, so that, that, was, that was my pick. Marsh, you're up next. Um, what do you got for us? Avid listeners of The Gauntlet will know that we've been traipsing around the desert for quite a while now. What with our Dune episode and our Chosen One episode. And I was thinking purely on elemental terms. I wanted to get away from the sand and the desert and all this heavy shit that has been going on. So... I thought, bring some water into the mix. And the topic for this week is dangerous when wet. I can't wait to take a dip. Hydrate or die, as they say. (laughs) (laughs) As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. We are under the beginning. We won't see the time when the earth is full of the kingdom. 
And yet, even now, even here, we are at the end also. The kingdom is within us. There's nothing more to fear. Upon us, the years will be built, many years, many martyrdoms. The ground of men is very stubborn to mature. But men will look back to us in our day and will wonder and remember our hope. It is the end of the day. We shall trust ourselves to a little pain and sleep.